we'll be peering into uh, the betrayal, the arrest, uh, the denial of our Lord and Savior uh, Jesus Christ. So um, you can follow along with me there in your word in Matthew chapter 26 as we kind of look at verses 47 through uh, 75 here uh, this morning. Um, what I want to look at first is, is really the idea of what we see here inside of the scripture that we're going to focus first on the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. That's where they would grow olives, take them uh, to this pressing room, and they would squeeze them to the point where it would drain all of the oil, oil out of the olives um, and leaving this dust behind and yet this precious, precious, valuable oil to these people. And yet this is where Jesus has gone on many occasions with his disciples. And yet as we looked at last week, is that the thing that it was going to be crushed inside the Garden of Gethsemane on this night was not olives, but it was God in the flesh. It was Jesus himself that as the full divine wrath of God was not going to pass over him, but would purposely land on the Savior, on the Messiah, on Jesus, as he bore our sins, hell itself, God's wrath was being poured out to Jesus, squeezing him to the point where he would literally bleed out for the sake of his church, for the sake of his people. This is what Jesus does, and he gladly drinks the cup of wrath for you and I, the cup that we deserve to drink is the cup that Jesus purposefully and joyfully goes and experiences on behalf of man in obedience to God so that we can be reconciled to God himself. Without Jesus drinking this wrath for you and I, then we experience hell. We experience separation from God's love for all of eternity and that's what separates many of us, maybe even in this room today. Those of us who have been saved are in the, the covering of Christ's blood. And yet, for those of us who are unsaved and will remain that way, we will one day experience that same wrath as it is poured out on you for all of eternity. So Jesus is praying with his disciples. He's encouraging them to pray. And yet, what do we find out? They keep sleeping. Jesus comes to them and says, man, you're, you're going to be tested. You need to stay awake. You need to pray. And yet, as he comes to them and comes to them and comes to them, they continue to fall asleep. Our text here today tells us that a great crowd came with Judas the betrayer. Um, and what's interesting about this, a lot of these Christian movies that we put out, it, it just looks like, you know, a few angry folks. But this great multitude, it's believed that it could have been anywhere between about 200 to 600 folk were with Judas. Many of them armed guards, others were temple police. And so it wasn't, this was an angry mob of people that were coming to grab a hold of and to get Jesus. They, they were sent by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and Judas had gathered some Roman guards in order to help with this arrest, which sounds Pretty interesting um, if we have paid much attention to the person and work of Jesus. This is the Jesus that can calm storms. This is the Jesus that can walk on water. This is the Jesus that can raise people from the dead. This is the, the Jesus that about 48 hours before this took place goes into the Temple Mound and runs out everyone in the Gentile court with a whip. Jesus is a good person 
bad man. Like, don't mess with Jesus, all right? Um, Jesus has the power, and so Judas knows this. It's kind of like coming at a superhero with all your military might. This is the scene as it is probably now after midnight, Jesus has been praying. He's standing there with his disciples, and behold, here comes the betrayer with the Romans and the angry religious group of Jews. Judas signals the angry mob of which one is the Messiah. It's believed that it was almost impossible in this olive grove to see um, because of how big the trees were. It was after midnight, and they needed some sort of uh, clue to let us know, okay, out of all this ragamuffin group of dudes, which one is Jesus? And Judas tells them, the one that I kiss is the one that is the Messiah. It's interesting, in several of the Gospels, when it talks about Judas kissing Jesus, um, that it appears as though it just wasn't a single peck on the cheek. Now, again, I know this is kind of strange for us. I love you, Jonathan, but I ain't kissing you, bro. We, we down? We cool? All right, we're, we got that understanding. Um, in this culture, though, that was the way in which they would often greet each other, even males. So this would not have been abnormal, but it gives the appearance in some of the language there that this was more of a, a passionate type of kissings, or he may have gave him multiple kisses. Judas wanted it to be clear, this is the one. And what does Jesus say to him? Friend. Do what you have come to do. Now, in the original language, the word friend there is more about fellow. It has to do with the term fellow, not like we would think BFFs here, best friends forever. This is thinking about the idea of an acquaintance, a fellow, a person, a generality. Now, what makes that interesting is that who is Judas? Judas has been following Jesus for now three years. The Bible even tells us that before Jesus picks Judas, that he spends a night in prayer before he selects Judas to be his disciple. Do we know that Jesus, from God's word, we know that Jesus knows what's going to be happening to him. He knows what is, he, before the foundations of the earth has orchestrated every detail of his existence, his life, his incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection is all at the hands of God himself. And yet he tells Judas to do this. We see that Jesus steps toward, toward the men and asks a question, who is it that you seek? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. He responds to them, I am he. Now what's interesting about this passage and Jesus' response here after he is being seized is this idea of him saying, I am he. What is significant about Jesus responding in that particular way? Was it just a general, hey, yeah, my name is Jesus. What's up? Or was there more to what Jesus was saying in this response? I would argue, brothers and sisters, that Jesus was not just generically saying that he is Jesus, but that Jesus was referring back to Exodus chapter 3 when, when the burning bush is burning and yet not being consumed before Moses the prophet. And Moses says, okay, I, I will go back to Pharaoh, but who do I tell him who you are? And what does the Bible tell us there? I am 
who I am. And in this moment, Jesus, referring back to that very moment, declares that he is the great I am. I am he, which literally means kind of if you, if you work all the wordings out, I am be, like I have always been. And I am him. I am the great I am. It's interesting, Jesus tells the guards, I am who you seek, now let my disciples go. Now if we paid any attention to this, it's very obvious that these guys are accomplices to Jesus' work. They've been following Jesus now again for three years, everywhere that Jesus has gone, these disciples have gone, they have been his accomplices. And yet, instead of imprisoning those men, when Jesus says, let my men go, what do they do? They let those brothers go. They let them go. They let them go. They'd have every right to arrest them as well. But this phrase that Jesus uses here, and let my men go or let these men go, uh, it's an imperative, meaning this. It is a command for them to let them go. And immediately, they do it. Time out for a second. Who's in charge of what's happening here? God is in charge of what's happening here. Jesus is in charge of his own arrest. Jesus is in control of everything. It is not these men who will take Jesus' life. It is I who lay down my life. Jesus is laying down his life. He is, again, orchestrated. He is the great composer of even this dark, dark moment. They let him go. Though undeserving, these disciples, Jesus cares enough to even protect them in this moment. Man, like many of us, as we have seen Peter, Peter is the one that is mentioned here in the other Gospels that tells us that it was Peter, but as these men step towards Jesus, what begins to happen? It says that Peter drew their sword, and after, again, declaring that Jesus is the Lord, John 18, 6 tells us that the soldiers back up and fell to the ground at the declaration of who Jesus said he was. They got it, to some degree, who this man was. And yet as they now stand up and move closer towards towards Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and probably attempting to whack off the head of this gentleman, cuts off his ear. The Gospels tells us that pretty much Jesus picks up an ear, which is disgusting to think about, and heals the man. All right, so think about this just for a moment. The man you are coming to arrest, the man who you are already bowing down because he is declaring to be God, and yet you're there to get him for declaring to be God. A guy's ear gets cut off, and this rabbi from Nazareth picks up this, you know, floppy thing and sticks it back on the ear or the head of this gentleman. This is the scene that it's taking place. He tells Peter to do what? To put up his sword. For a man lives by the sword, he will also die by the sword. He heals the man's ear, and yet, what do they do? They still arrest Jesus. Why? Who's in control of this? The hour has come. 
Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost is now. The Word of God tells us that His Word is a two-edged sword. But this Word is not made of steel. It is made of words. See, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not spread by military or political might. Christianity, our faith, the gospel, is not spread by forcing people to bow to this understanding of who Jesus is. No, Christianity is is spread by you and I going to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, not simply trying to live out lifestyle evangelism. No, that's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to that Plus, and even more importantly, a proclamation, a declaration with our very lips that people would repent of their sins, turn to Jesus, and know him forever and ever. That is the sword that we carry. It tells us in verse 26 through 56 that the disciples then left him. They had every opportunity in this moment to illustrate what they had just said they would do in the Lord's Supper. Remember? We'll fight for you. We'll die for you. We'll never forsake you. We will be with you until the very end. And they're given an opportunity to illustrate that. But when push came to shove, when their faith was checked, when their faith was tested, these men fled. From there we go to the trial in verse Uh, Chapter 26, verses 57 through 67, Jesus is at Caiaphas, the high priest's house. The Bible tells us here in this passage that Peter follows him, and and he's following him kind of through the entire process, kind of at the outskirts or in the shadows or in the fringes. Look at what it tells us here. It says, and Peter following with him at a distance, as far as the courtyard, of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So they're wanting Jesus to death, die. Jesus is into their pocketbooks. He's afraid he's going to ruin their relationship with the Romans, and, and that this is going to cause major problems for their popularity, for their power, and for their pocketbooks. And so in the middle of the night, while all of the Israelites who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover are probably asleep, a small grouping of people, of high priests, scribes, lawyers, whatever you want to call them, gather together by candlelight, by fire, to accuse Jesus of this blasphemy. And so they begin to call in witnesses. And what do the witnesses say? This man has declared that he would destroy the temple and in three days that he will raise it up. And when they asked Jesus this question, if he said that, what does Jesus do? He remains silent. Was this a true statement of Jesus? Yes. But was it being used falsely? Yes. Why? Because Jesus was not speaking of the literal temple that they were looking at. Jesus was speaking of himself. He is saying, I am the temple. It will be destroyed. I am the house of God. I am the presence of God. It will be destroyed. And yet in three days, it will rise up. And yet Jesus remains silent to fulfill Isaiah 53, 7, that says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like sheep that were before its shears is silent. So he opened not his 
mouth. They continue to interrogate. And they ask Jesus, you say, or, or are you the Christ, the Son of God? They know that depending on how he answers this, this is blasphemy, folks. Again, they're fulfilling even what the Old Testament would tell them to do toward false prophets and blasphemers. None of us could declare that we are God. If so, we would be put to death. And yet, the paradox about Jesus is, is that he is God. And so after being silent after all of this questioning, when they ask if he is the Christ, the Son of God, now Jesus engages them like he did when he was tempted in the desert by Satan. He uses scripture to reiterate who he was. He quotes a portion of Daniel chapter 7 and a portion of Psalm chapter 110, applying that these scriptures were talking about him. Look at it, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjured that, that by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of power and coming in clouds of heaven. Upon hearing this, the Bible tells us that the chief priest then practically rips off of his clothes. He pulls a Hulk Hogan or something. I mean, he, he's ripping off of his clothes to show disgust at this. Because again, from us, we have people who are claiming to, to be all sorts of things all the time. And again, they had high esteem of whom they believed that God was and for any man to declare that he was going to be with God and has the power of God and that you would see him with God in the presence of God was blasphemous to the point where they had this literal ripping of their clothes in grief and remorse and of anger. The chief priest says what? He has uttered blasphemy. He's uttered blasphemy. The Jewish leaders now have every, every proof to indict Jesus. If he was not the son of God, which is what they believe, then he has just committed blasphemy and is again punishable by death. Also, they could take this little bit of knowledge because though they were a Jewish nation, they were a Jewish nation resting under Roman rule. So they couldn't just go and kill one of their people. They had to have Roman approval, which we'll get to in the next week or so. But they could also go to the Romans and tell them, hey, this Jesus guy, this Jesus from Nazareth is saying that, that he is the true king. You've got to get this, folks. During this time, Caesar was believed to be a god. He was a self-professed god. He was the king of the universe. And now someone, a Jewish guy from Galilee, this kind of podunk, redneck grouping of people is now declaring that he is the one and true king. See how that could easily be twisted toward the Romans for them to believe that he was going to commit treason and come against them. The Bible tells us that he, they pretty much had to wait for the Romans and until then they decided to spit in Jesus' face and to slap him. 
and to mock him by saying such things is prophesied to us, you Christ. Tell us who's hitting you, who's slapping you. From there, from the betrayal and rest, we go to the trial and then we go to the denial. The denial. The denial of Peter. Peter, hearing all of this that is taking place, the Bible tells us that a servant girl, I don't know what she's doing up in the middle of the night, but she's up. She's got terrible parents. Sees this guy named Peter. She recognizes that this is the Peter that has been walking around for several days in Jerusalem with Jesus. And she comes up to Peter and says, you were with Jesus. And what is Peter's response? Peter's response in this passage says, but he denied it before them all saying, I, I, I do not know what you mean. This first denial of Peter was a very passive one. He was like, man, there's all kinds of Yeshua's around here. I don't even know this Jesus guy. I know lots of Jesuses. It was that sort of generic response. There are many Jesuses. I, I don't know this one. From there, there's a second denial. A, a servant girl comes to Peter and, and tells him once again, while all of this again is transposing around him, um, he, he, this servant girl comes to Jesus or Peter and says, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? I don't know about you, but if you're a parent and you get asked more than once, it's almost threat level midnight. Like, like you have an intense, sorry, that was a bad office reference. If you've not seen the office. Um, it, you have an intensity to, to step up in your level of frustration, right? Especially when you are guilty. Kids do this too. You ask the question and they're like, no. You ask them again, and they're like, no. You ask them again, and then they're rolling your eyes at you, all right? They're huffing and puffing and stomping. And, and it happens a lot, again, when, when we have broken it. When we have done something wrong, typically we become more defensive about it. And now Peter has stepped up the intensity in his denial. Aren't you the one who was with Jesus? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter gives a more serious response. The Bible tells us that he makes an oath to try to seal his statement to make it more trustworthy. Don't we do the same thing? No, man, man, man I, I promise. Instead of just being able to say, I will do blank, we have to say, man, I promise I will do blank. We'll say things like, man, I, I swear, I, I promise, man, I, I'm telling you, this, we don't even use truth anymore. We have to say, no, this is the absolute truth. Do you ever notice when you're communicating with somebody, you'll say things like, man, I, I'm telling you the truth. Like, was everything else a lie? And now you're going to tell me the truth? Just a little insight, if a person continues to repeat themselves saying they're telling you their truth, they're usually telling you a lie. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. This is the truth right here, man. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling, it usually means I'm telling you a lie, all right? 
So Peter steps up his intensity in his defensiveness of going from a general kind of passive, no, I don't even know who this Jesus is, to no, I promise I don't know this Jesus. I promise, I swear to you, I'm not a disciple of this Jesus. Again, while all this questioning is still taking place for Jesus in front of the high priest, there comes a third denial. About an hour later or so, Peter is watching the trial with others. And Peter must have been from like, we'll pick on northern people, northern Galilee. Because there's a man who was standing there close to him. I don't know if they're warming their hands by the fire as they're watching this trial take place. But this gentleman Ask him, he says, after a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly you too were one of them, for your accent betrays you. Peter and most of the disciples are from Galilee, so they must add a little bit different um, dialect, all right? They're from like Hadley in Warren County, all right? Or Minnesota, where they put their groceries in a big. Took me forever to figure out what they were talking about. People from north, a big is a bag. All right. So his accent gave away that he was from the same area that Jesus is from. And what does the Bible tell us? Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man in taking a step toward frustration and taking a step toward defensiveness in this third denial um, Peter does something extremely serious he is scared he is frustrated he is overwhelmed with with guilt and wanting to just simply blend into the crowd he knows at any moment again he's an accomplice of Jesus he's just whacked off a dude's ear they could arrest him and in that moment wanting to simply go into the shadows and be a member of society he literally cries out in this moment let God strike me down I do not know this Man, I do not know this Jesus. He continues to swear. He continues to call down a curse. Literally, Peter is saying in this moment, I want the wrath of God to come down on me if I'm lying. And what happens? And immediately, the rooster crowed. Five, six hours earlier, I'm not really for sure, Jesus is at the Passover, redeeming it, making it the Lord's Supper, right? And you remember that exchange? They're all arguing back and forth. We'll never forsake you. We will die for you. We will never leave you, Jesus. And you kind of hear Peter is, is stepping up his game. I mean, he wants Jesus to know that he is the most faithful follower of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him in the eyes and he tells them that before this night ends, before the rooster crows, Peter, you would have denied me three 
times. At the sound of this rooster crowing, the memory of the conversation that Jesus had had just shared with Peter comes back to his his mind here. The the one witness that they could have called to to help Jesus' case was Peter. And there was another disciple there, it's believed to be John. The two witnesses that you would need in Jewish law to to give an account toward the, the person and work of this Jesus who they are coming against and falsely accusing on many things are the very ones that were silent. The true witness in the crowd, Peter, became a false witness. The rooster crowing, signifying the coming of dawn, simultaneously signified for Peter the darkest moment in Peter's denial. The Bible tells us that he's overcome with grief. He's become sorrowful of sin. The often arrogant, boastful Peter is now broken and humbled. He is a failure. He is a liar. He is a traitor. He has committed treason to God himself. He has called down the wrath of God. On himself. The one who is innocent is being beaten. And the one who is guilty is set free to leave. Brothers and sisters, friends, we cannot understand the magnitude of Peter's sin here. We cannot understand its depth. But from the betrayal and arrest, from the trial and from the denial of Peter, there are many things that you and I need to learn as we peer into this scene. First, what can we learn from Judas? Why does Jesus do why does Judas do this? Why does Judas betray Jesus? I think the first thing that we need to understand is that Judas became very frustrated with Jesus for not performing the way that he thought he should be performing. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that Judas probably had in his mind. Surely our God cannot do that. Or surely our God would not just stand by if he really was um, God in the flesh. Surely he couldn't stand by while our people are being oppressed and in bondage and slavery at the hands of these pagan Romans. Jesus is not doing what Judas wanted him to do. See, Judas wanted a God of his own creation, not the God of the Scriptures. Not a a redeeming, saving, um, reconciling us to God. He was probably looking for a military leader. Judas was wanting something more than Jesus was currently going to give him. And so he betrayed him. How many of us or how many of us know people who are no longer walking with Jesus 
because of something terrible happening in their lives. And therefore, they've become bitter, angry, and arrogant with this mindset. Well, if you're not going to do this for me, or because this has happened to me, I'll show you, God. The second reason why I think that Judas betrays Jesus is this. Judas did it for the money. He did it for the money. Judas betrayed Jesus. He traded in God Almighty, a relationship with God, a forever kingship under his authority. No more pain, no more sorrow for 30 pieces of silver, which was equivalent to what you would pay to buy a slave in the Old Testament. Judas was consumed with consuming Judas traded in Jesus because he was more concerned about his money, his investments, his earthly future than trusting Jesus to provide his every need. He wanted glory. He wanted the gold now. And Jesus was promising him something later. How many of us daily have to fight the drift toward our occupation, our money, our homes, our vehicles, our wants. Fight that drift daily with desiring and being consumed more with those things than being desired and consumed with the person and work of Jesus. So I think that he was frustrated with Jesus. Second thing is, is I think that he, he wanted the money. It was more valuable than Jesus. The third thing that I think of why Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus is literally because it was in God's control for him to do so. This passage tells us in several different places in chapter 26 that this was happening to fulfill the Scriptures which was one of the major goals inside of Matthew writing this gospel was to show Jewish believers that the God of the Old Testament who was promising a Messiah, that Jesus is that Messiah. And Jesus was once again illustrating that this is what is supposed to be happening. Remember, I love that passage where I, I believe that, that Jesus, and this is again reading into it just a little bit, I believe that Jesus was just kind of really calm in this moment. And he's looking at his followers. He's looking at these 200 to 600 men. And he goes, hey, Peter, do you not know that I could, not, that I could call on my Father in heaven and call 72,000 plus angels? That's a little overkill, Jesus. Like one angel will probably do it, right? But Peter, it, I, don't, I don't need a sword, bro. I could call my daddy. I could call God our Father. I could call in the blink of the moment, Peter. I don't need you to rescue me. I'm the very one who created the seed that was placed into the ground to make the wood handle that is holding the torches. I'm the one that knitted the, the iron together inside of the earth that was originally consumed to create the blade, Peter, that you're holding. See, Peter, I know what you're thinking. You see that guy way back there? 
in the shadows, that Roman guard, I know what he's thinking too. And my God's got this. See, all of this, this is where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility collide. And that's a mystery that is very difficult for us to understand. I think we can also learn some other things from, from Judas here as well. We need to get this this morning, and I say this as a warning. It is possible for you and I and for others to be attached to Jesus, but to not know Jesus. It is possible to be a member of a church. It is possible to be a pastor or camp counselor. It's possible to be in a youth group or mission kids. It's possible to be a missionary in a foreign country and not have a relationship with Jesus. Who in this room has been closer to the physical personhood of Jesus than Judas? None of us here. I mean, we all say, man, if I could just see Jesus walk on the water, then I would really become, you know, enter beast mode for the gospel. If, if I could just see Jesus turn that water into wine or to calm those storms, then I would be really faithful in my belief. And yet Judas had all of those. He, he slept next to our Lord. He, he ate with them. He traveled. He saw all of those miracles. He knew of Jesus, but he did not know Jesus. When we simply have a desire to follow Jesus as a means of making friends or being a better citizen, being a better parent, a better husband, a wife, a child, again, that is not the goal of our faith. That's not the goal. Our goal is to get God through Jesus. We get God. We get to have a relationship with him. And yet so many, especially in American culture, are simply wanting to kind of go through this behavior modification, Christianity. We want our kids to be raised in this because we want them to be good and respectful. And, and we know that this is the best way for us to live our best life now. And I want to be a good mom, so I need to be a good Christian. I want you to know you are missing the gospel. You're missing the gospel. The thing is, we get God through the person and work of Jesus. As we've been going through our missional communities, we're going through a workbook, and it's called Behold Your God, and it has been absolutely just beautiful meat and potatoes for your pastor's heart and soul. And in the, one of the days this last week, the title of it was The Danger of Acknowledging God Without Knowing Him. This is Christianity. We see, or they make a statement, and I want to make it toward you. It's that the Christianity, they, excuse me, the Christianity that we see in the Bible and the Christianity we live is often two different things. This is what Mark Dever would call pastor up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. False converts. He would also later go on to say that false converts are the suicide of the church. Judas was a false convert. He intellectually ascended. I'm sure if you were to ask him the baptism questions, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Yeah. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? He'd probably say, yeah. But he was not his Lord. 
Isn't it interesting that we'll see next week, we'll read it, that what happens to Judas? He hangs himself. See, false converts are, are terrible witnesses to a world that is lost and undone without Jesus, but is also false converts quickly ruining a church. They ruin the body. It leads to death. And this is a powerful thing that we can learn from Judas. Next, what can we learn from Peter? Number one, I believe like Peter that we are tempted to find confidence in our own abilities. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We become prideful, and as again, as we learned, behold your God this last week, that we are, we are prideful individuals, that we are, we are selfish, that we want selfish ambition. And yet Peter is in this moment, he's declaring, again, just moments earlier, I'll never leave, I'll never forsake, I'll fight to the death for my Lord, for you, Jesus. And he becomes swelled up in spirituality, and yet he is lost in this moment. Number two, I think we're like Peter, is that we often are tempted to blend into the crowd, to look at everyone else and want to look like everyone else. Peter becomes scared as he is associated with Jesus. In our culture, the dividing line is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Even in the last two or three years, how many of you have been asked if you're the token Christian at your job? How many of you have been asked such things about, you know, what do you believe about politics? What do you believe about abortion? What do you believe about same-sex marriage or, or homosexuality or drinking alcohol or cussing or watching Game of Thrones? If you're a Christian, where do you think about these issues? And man, it, it becomes very difficult, doesn't it? And the temptation again is to drift toward sounding and looking like the majority of the direction that everyone else is heading. You don't want to be that guy or that gal. You don't want to be consumed or, or be considered to be some sort of, uh, of holy roller. And yet what does God call us to? As Jesus is standing trial over his kingship, Peter is standing trial over his discipleship. Is he really a follower of Jesus? See, some of you have never been tested. Because the reality is, is we look like everybody else. But in true fellowship, it is going to cause dissension. The Bible tells us that it will. It will be a sweet aroma to some, and yet it will be pungent to others. It will cause some of us, our relationship with Jesus, to be drawn near. I can, with some of you who are faithfully seeking out, when I get around you, or, or Todd and I will talk about this, when we go to Africa and you meet these brothers and sisters for the first time and you sit down with them and you hear their story, it's like you've been family with them forever and ever because they, they know the journey, they know the struggle, they know the plowing of the ground, they know the sweat of the brow and, and fighting the drift of our flesh while wanting to ultimately be faithful to Jesus. Let's be honest, that's not the case with everybody in America who claims to be a Christian. 
Peter is standing trial in his discipleship, and there are many of us that don't even really get what I know because, again, we're not following Jesus. We look, sound, smell like the world, and yet Jesus is saying to look and smell and act like me. Jesus stands before the most powerful Jewish leaders, and he's questioned while Peter stands trial in front of two powerless little servant girls and some random dude. And he what? He, he crumbles. The man who the moment earlier drew the sword to take out several hundred men on his own is now cowardly running from two girls and another man. Jesus fiercely stands his ground while Peter is filled with fear. Jesus is innocent. Peter is guilty. In his own self-confidence, past experiences, he, he boasts. Peter does, yet he falls. Jesus told him, man, you, you need to stay up and pray, Peter, because you're about to be tested. I'm afraid that you will fall. Yet he slept. And how many of us, brothers and sisters, friends, how many of us know the right answers? We even maybe know the word, and yet daily we sleep. Resting in our, our laurels. Hear me in this. I believe that many of us are, are retired with confidence in our relationship with Jesus because of something that has happened in the past with him. I believe that many of us have become retired, that we're, we're just going to coast through the rest of our lives with Jesus because of something that happened way in the past. I grew up in church, and we used to sing this song about, give me that old-time religion, all right? And so you had this church camp moment. You had this offbeat clapping. It's terrible. And everybody's screaming out, give us that old-time religion. Yet they weren't talking about a religion of the Bible. They were talking about past moments that seemed to be very emotionally. And remember when this happened, it was awesome. Or this service, and they're constantly trying to recreate this moment. And we love those highs. I've had many church camp a high Friday night moments. How about you? And so we are we retired again with confidence. I used to be a preacher. I used to be a missionary. I used to be a Sunday school teacher. I will often greet people, and that's the way they'll introduce themselves. I'll say, do you go to church? And they're like, no, but man, I love Jesus. And I used to be a Sunday school teacher. They're coasting they're retired in their relationship with Jesus because they are confident in something or some experience that happened way in their past brothers and sisters if you haven't encountered Jesus this week then what is your testimony we need to be encountering Jesus weekly engaging with him I I'm not simply married to my wife because of an awesome moment we had 16 17 years ago no I'm even more dedicated to my wife because of a date night this Friday night man it's, I think it is the we are so good at deceiving each other 
And guess what else? We are so good at deceiving ourselves. And yet scripture is constantly telling us to examine our relationship with the Lord, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to ask, man, do I know this Jesus or am I a Judas? I love Mark Phillips. He is my childhood best friend. He's a ministry partner. You can see his ugly grill on a picture out there. And in two weeks, he's going to be here preaching to us. Well, the statement that I've said over and over from us traveling um, to the song High this past summer was this statement that they tell people when they baptize them. We baptize based on their confession of faith. So if you're a song high and you come from a Muslim, a lost person, a sinner, Jesus saves you, you want to be obedient in baptism, guess what? They will baptize you because of your confession of faith. But get this. We baptize based on their confession, but our true confidence in their faith doesn't come when we bury them in the water, but it comes when we bury them in the ground. Why do they tell them that? Because Jesus tells me, man, there are lots of soils out there. I tell you that I love my wife. But you know how I'm really going to know, you're going to know if I love her? When I'm buried next to her. I tell you I love Jesus. Do you know what's going to say more about my relationship with Jesus is if I'm more like Jesus on the day that I croak and I literally pray that it's on a Saturday night, I'm supposed to preach here on a Sunday and the Lord lets me go peacefully in the night and if y'all cancel service, I'm coming back. <laughs> because it should be the most God-exalting Brother Eric, because that's what you'll call me then, Brother Eric, because I'll be like, yeah, all right? I'll still come up here. We'll have to turn up the mic even more, all right? And I will pump this stuff out. But you're going to know, brothers and sisters, not because I prayed some prayer at 19 in my dorm room, but you're going to know if I've truly encountered the resurrected Jesus by how I finished this race, not how I was good at a sprint in a small portion of my life. Because from here to that door, I bet I could beat everybody in this room in a foot race. It's past that door, you're going to whoop me. All right? Because I'll be like, <sighs> I look like Conor McGregor in those fights last night. <sighs> All right? But my first punch is knock out. It's the second one I can't throw. But you got people claiming to have a, follower, a relationship with Jesus, claiming to be followers of Jesus because of something that simply happened in their life that was an emotional. Let me say something to everybody who's over 35 in this room because guess what? You're the old people of our church. I want you to really consider this. All right? When we started this, I was the second oldest person in our church. My brother-in-law, who just turned 40, was the oldest person in our church. Let me say something to you specifically. If you're over 35 in this place, I'm speaking to you. So if you're questioning, is he talking to me? If you're over 35, I'm talking to you. I don't know many old people who are finishing well. I don't. And that scares me. 
don't know many older people who are finishing well. I do not know many old people who are not retired in their relationship with the Lord simply coasting till they die. I don't know very many people. Um, I mean, I've even asked my mom this question. Mom, do you know anyone who's gotten old who is still being faithful? And she could name me one person of whom she knows, and he's now dead. And that was our childhood pastor, Brother Hightower. She could only name one. That should rattle us in this room. Because that man was looking more like Jesus when Brother Hightower died than he was my child when than he was when he was my childhood pastor. That should be the drive is, Lord, I want to finish well. I want to live as an example. When I'm old and gray and I got more hair on my ears than I'll ever have on my head, to my grandkids, to all of you, I want you guys to simply say on that day that I hope I die and you guys still have church here at this beautiful cafeteria of ours, that this probably will still be. But that's all right. That's what God's got for us. He's sovereign over that too, all right? And so when, when you come here, you're going to say, oh, I know that brother Eric. He levitated into heaven. That's how much that man was like Jesus, all right? Man, that is my hope. That is my desire, that my great, 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 great grandkids will be able to look through their family tree DNA and know that there was a man who faithfully loved his Jesus up and even more so on the day that he died than when he was 19. Over 35, we need you. Look around. We got a lot of young people in our church. They need you. They need good examples of people who are being faithful, even in their older age. Because when we look at the Bible, most of the people whom God is using to do amazing things are not the young bucks. But it's the Abrahams and Sarah who gets pregnant and she's laughing about it. (laughs) I mean, that's what Isaac means. It's Moses. Brother wasn't ripped coming out of a CrossFit convention and God say, yep, you're the guy. (laughs) He was an old man, I think in his 80s, right? When he finally had the burning bush moment and God called him to go back. That's the picture we see. We want to be faithful. We want to finish. We want to finish well. And why is that important to this story? This is what I want to show you quickly, very quickly. What do we learn about Jesus in this story, which is the most important things to learn about? This morning, we got to peer into the depravity of man and the greatness of our God. There there wasn't much difference between the sins of Judas and the sins of Peter. Both denied him, just in different ways. Both Peter and Judas denied him, but their response to their sin was completely different. Yet the rest of these stories of these men, again, the way that they finish was vastly different than the denials that we are seeing on this evening. Notice the next time that you're reading the Bible, which I encourage you to do daily, is when you come across the name Judas, what does it say in the Bible? Judas, one of the twelve, 
or, and most of the time, it says Judas, the betrayer. What if it was like your name, the jerk? Every time, you know, calling roll and attendance, you got a paycheck, there's blank, the jerk. Right? Whenever the scripture mentions Judas, they call him the betrayer. Usually it will say Judas the betrayer. It will say the one who betrays Jesus. There's a reason why you don't know any kids named Judas. Yeah, I got a little baby here. What's his name? Judas. What's his middle name? Hitler. Right? I mean, (laughs) you just don't do that. Yeah, you got to get this motion. All right? It's what daddies do. And then you jerk them up. Quit crying, right? Yeah, don't do that. Okay, that's bad. <laughs> that's, that's, this is the picture that I mean, we see. We don't, we don't hear people named Judas. And the thing is, is I think that the Gospels are actually very gracious toward Judas. They could go much worse. And yet, there are lots of people named Peter. When Peter is mentioned, it never says Peter the denier. It never says Peter, the one who cursed himself and calls God's wrath down upon him. No, it does not say that both sinned, but Judas's sin became his identity. But that is not the case for Peter. Why? Because Jesus restores Peter. The rooster crows, and in Luke chapter 22, verse 61 of this same story, the Bible tells us, I want you to get this moment. Jesus is being whipped. He is being spat upon. He is being questioned over and over and over and over again. All of a sudden, even Jesus hears the rooster crow, and the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22, at that very moment, the Lord looked up, turned, and caught eyes with Peter. Any mom and daddy's got any looks in here? My dad's is a bug-eyed headcock. Am I lying? My mom's is a stand-up straight, nostrils flare. And you knew exactly what mom and daddy meant. Did y'all have mom and daddies? You did, all right? Did they have looks? And now those of us who have kids, do you ever go, walk away and go, man, I just look like my daddy. (laughs) I just look like my mama. (laughs) I said I would never do that, right? I don't think that that's the look that Jesus is giving Peter. I mean, get this for a moment. Again, in the, sh- in the shadows of night, hundreds of people, Peter is denying you. He is your probably closest confidant. He is out of that 12 group of those 12 men. He is probably your most faithful follower. He is just sweared, cursed, promised Call down the wrath of God of him if he is lying and that you hear the rooster crow, which you told would happen. And you look up, get this, and you see your boy. You see your boy. You see your daughter. And I do not believe that it is the ugly stare that we've all gotten in Walmart, like don't touch that. I believe it was a look of compassion. I believe that it was a a look of wooing. 
This is not the first time that Jesus has looked into the eyes of Peter to make him walk straight. Because it happened on the water once. And when Peter began to believe in his own abilities, he began to sink. But when he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was faithful. This is our Lord's. Imagine what it was like. With the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus, the betrayal of a close friend, the physical arrest, the betrayal uh, of uh, his leading disciple, um, he still at this moment considers Peter. What I say happens will happen, Peter. With one glance, Jesus um, looks and arrests Peter with a glance. The one who is arrested, arrest him. The one who is in chains and bondage, arrest his son. Arrested Peter. He arrested his will. He arrested his pride, his arrogance, his denial. Jesus looks at Peter who has committed a grievous sin and with loving compassion and mercy, with the compassion in this moment, Jesus looks at Peter and he seizes Peter with the power of a great affection. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in the midst of our sin. Jesus loves us. He looks upon us, not in condemnation, not in I can't wait to get you home. No, with love and compassion, he woos his children back to himself and calls us to repentance. What happens when the king is arrested and then released? The arrested becomes the arrester. We have been seized by the power of a great affection. In John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19, Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He is having breakfast on the beach. All of a sudden, the disciples see him. He starts making this meal. He calls out. Peter says, is that you, Lord? And pretty much Jesus kind of waves him on out. The Bible tells us that Peter strips down. He runs to Jesus. He first swims, then runs to Jesus. He gets to Jesus, and Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He asks you again, do you love me, Peter? And Peter responds, what? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Again, Jesus asks a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Do you think that is just coincidence that Peter asked or Jesus asked him three times? No, he was redeeming and restoring this fallen man. This broken man, he was calling him back. He was saying, you're my boy. Like, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. This is, yes, it is terrible what you have done, but my grace, my mercy, my compassion is even greater still. And is Peter restored partially? No. He is restored completely. Jesus didn't put him on the JV team. He made him the team captain. This is what Jesus does. We will see, and they're asking Peter, you have been with Jesus, and Peter declares, no, but later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, who is the man that stands up and proclaims? It is this Peter. He promises he will even be imprisoned. What do we see in the book of Acts? He is imprisoned. Later on in, in the book of Acts chapter verse chapter 4, verse 13, it even tells us that they begin to recognize because how Peter is living and what he is preaching, that surely this Peter has been with Jesus. This is the kind of illustration that we see of a redeemed person. 
Peter is a coward no more. He is bold because he has met Jesus and has been restored by him. We get to peer into Peter's story to see the, the, you know, the deceitfulness of human nature and of pride and of selfish ambition. We get to see God's mercy over this condition, leaving us to both boast in nothing but the cross. Jesus arrests the hearts of sinners and makes them into saints. Jesus is the pursuer of broken men and women. Scripture never alludes of Jesus, Judas being a true believer because we see how his story ends. He's overcome with grief. And he kills himself. But Peter's identity is not described as Peter the denier. No, Peter's identity is secure in Jesus because we see true repentance. We see a man who will stand and preach. Judas will hang himself upon a tree. And Peter, according to church history, will one day as well hang upon a tree. One has put himself there. The other one is put there because the sword is no longer in its sheath, pulled out to physically cut someone, but the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is protruding from this man, and it is being proclaimed that Jesus is Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And according to church tradition, church history, he was buried upside down because he declared, I do not want to, I am not even you know, worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Restored. Repentant. This morning, are you a Judas or are you a Peter? The question is not, are you a sinner? Because you are. The question is, are you marked, is your life marked by Jesus who takes away our sin who bears the wrath of God, therefore leading us to repentance and reconciliation with God. Repentance is more than a feeling of sorrowfulness for one's sin. It is a turning away from sin and back to God. We learn that Jesus, Judas, also felt sorry for his sin against Jesus, yet he did not turn back to Jesus. He killed himself. Peter grieved his sin, but immediately, at a mere glance recognizes and is restored later by Jesus. Repentance is more than a confession. True repentance is fellowship. Remorse and repentance are not the same thing. Brothers and sisters, friends of Mission Church, our prayer is that, man, we would be a church that has been and will live out what it means to be seized by the power of a great affection.